Anybody hungry for the Word of God this morning? We've already heard it read and prayed and sung, and now we get to hear it preach. You can open your Bibles up to 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we pick pick up where we left off last week, I'm going to begin at verse... 22, and yes, we will be finishing this chapter this morning, Lord willing. So if you find your place in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22 through 29, would you join me for standing as we read the word of God together, as we examine holding fast to the ancient confession. The precious, inerrant, infallible word of the very living God says this, Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods." For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel... Have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, oh how you have already been so generous to us this morning. Allowing us just to gather in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Allowing us to hear his word proclaimed through reading, praying, singing, and now preaching. We ask that you would do what only you can do in Christ and by your spirit. That you would cause this word to dwell in us richly, that it might overflow to the praise of your name. Would you be pleased to do this? In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'll be honest, I'm I'm a little bittersweet this morning. Um, I, I confess... We could easily spend another six months in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But I know that some of you are weary. That's okay. So I'm going to bring it to a close this morning. But I do want us to remember what this chapter has taught us as a whole. We've, we've taken a long time to get through it. And sometimes when that happens, you lose sight that 2 Samuel 7 isn't necessarily best read or even preached in bits and pieces. I just couldn't do it any other way. There's so much here unless we could have an eight-hour church service, which I would be all for. It is... Um, 
But it's an incredible text when you think about its place uh, in, in function in the course of redemptive history. Hopefully, if you walk away with nothing else, you will remember that. What the Lord does here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is nothing less than once again reveal his faithfulness to an unfaithful people. We've heard that drum beat throughout the scripture as we've expounded it. But it really does reach a crescendo here. We must hear and understand that our God is so faithful. As I've attempted to proclaim, because of his faithfulness, you and I should be far more confident than we are in a faithful God who has promised to remain faithful. So we take up again one more time and consider this last portion of David's response to God's faithful proclamation over his life. The promise that at some point in his immediate future, he would establish David's kingdom. He would supply rest for God's people. That after David passes away, he would raise up David's son and establish his house forever. So as we take up this last portion, I want to do so really just by focusing our attention attention on verse 28. Look at verse 28, because 28 really kind of serves as a summary of everything David has said up to this point. And it starts really with an ancient confession. Let's go ahead and, and put that as our number one this morning. It starts with an ancient confession. Verse 28 says this, And now, O Lord God. I know that doesn't much mean much to you if you read in English, but it says, Adonai Yahweh. That is, Master Yahweh. It is the personal covenant name of God. Lord, Lord, Master, Yahweh, you are God. Simply put, when David says this, it's nothing short of a confession of faith to a God who has revealed himself to David and to Israel. And and as we've said, this is an ancient confession that David is making here. He's not offering or responding to any kind of new revelation here. This is the message of the Bible, and it's the message of the Bible from the very opening verse of the very opening chapter in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. See, even in that verse, that's a declaration that the Lord, Master Yahweh, is alone God. There is no other. Of course, the rest of Genesis chapter 1 goes on to make that very same point, doesn't it? Those things which other cultures, other nations and peoples worshipped, they were no gods at all. Not even worth naming Just the sun and the moon. They're just the big light and the little light. Things that Yahweh himself spoke into existence by the word of his power. That is the God who has revealed himself to his people. That's a big God, by the way. So from the opening verse of the opening chapter of the Bible, this much already is clear. This God is making a comprehensive claim about his own power and nature. He is portrayed as the only one of his kind. In fact, that's one of the things we really learn in this ancient confession is that the God of Israel is utterly unique. The God of Israel is 
utterly unique. He is depicted as the source of all things. The beginning of all worlds. The ruler of every square inch of creation. It all belongs to Master Yahweh. In fact, Genesis just describes what Paul would go on to later write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. One of my favorite texts in all of scripture. It says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So from Genesis onward, God reveals himself as utterly unique, as the God who has no rivals. You, you think of the story of the Exodus, right? Uh, th- those ten plagues, they served the same purpose as the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. Both teach the same thing about this God. He has no rivals and he alone has authority. And, and not just over Israel, but over all nations. This opening declaration is a reminder that our God is not some local deity. He may, yes, be the God of Israel, but it doesn't mean that he's not the God of the cosmos also. In fact, I immediately thought of Rahab's testimony when I thought about this this week in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Because, by the way, of what her ears have heard, we'll get to that in a bit, look at what she says. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land... That the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. We could go on and on here, but but nobody really does this better than the book of Isaiah chapter 45. I, I hope you're familiar with that chapter. If not circle it and read it over and over again this week. It's so good. I'm just going to not start the whole way. I'm just going to start at verse 5 and kind of skip through the chapter to show you how great it is. Uh, It's wonderful. Verse 5 starts like this. I'm the Lord and there's no other. There's no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. He's talking about Cyrus, by the way, who he's calling to set his people free at the end of their exile. In verse 7, he goes on. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Life, death, light, darkness, peace, calamity. It's not something to attribute to some things over here to this God and over here to this other God. Yahweh is over all of it. He is master. He is Lord. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens? Who is God? Who formed the earth and made it? Who has established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord and there is no other. Verses 21 through 23. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? There's no other God besides me. A just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, 
The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. See friends, this is the ancient confession. The God of Israel is utterly unique. There's something else we see about this God of Israel though. The second point is this this utterly unique God, the God of Israel, condescends and invites his creation to partake in his divine nature. Do you see that? This utterly unique God condescends and invites his creation to partake in his divine nature. Not, by the way, to become God, but to bask in, to reflect, and to enjoy the glory and knowledge of God for all of eternity. To be clothed in his excellencies, to bear his image and likeness, partaking in the love within the Godhead, and to make that love known throughout all the world. See, when David says here that that Yahweh is God, David is confessing the God who called Abraham out of the land of Ur in order to bring blessings to the nations. David is confessing the God who passed through the bloody carcasses in order to make his promises more certain. David is confessing the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt and revealed himself to the children of Abraham who has brought them thus far. In fact, you look back at our text in 2 Samuel 7, David makes this clear in verses 22 through 23, doesn't he? Look what he says. Put your eyes on the text with me. It says, Therefore you're great, O Lord God, for there's none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. This is what David is declaring in succinct summary form when he says in verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God. David's saying, Yahweh, Israel's God is a lone God, no Baal, no Asherah, no Hadad, no Malik, no Dagon, no modern medicine, no doctor, no president, no job, no woman, no man, no philosophy, no political or economic system should ever be compared with him. He is the only appropriate place for you to put your ultimate hope. Every other hope... Every other attempt to secure blessing for yourself, it's vanity. It's actually more than that. It's actually not just vain. Every other attempt to secure joy, blessing, meaning, or satisfaction apart from the one to whom everyone must give an account, it's not just vanity, it's a declaration of war. That ancient confession is something that is demanded of every creature made in the image of God. And the refusal to make that ancient confession, it's what we actually refer to as sin. David is saying there is one God in heaven and on earth, therefore there is one God of heaven and earth. There's no split allegiance here. We may not serve two masters. There's no serving this God while in Egypt and this God while in the land of the Canaanites. Your allegiance cannot be divided. You serve him or you don't. Which leads me to our second point. Now that we've seen this ancient confession, I want us to see this. 
knowing that the Lord is God, comes through hearing with faith. This is something that ancient confession kind of points us towards. We know this ancient confession, it, knowing that the Lord is God, once we know that, it, it comes, the way it arrives at us is through hearing with faith. Look again at verse 22. It says there, Therefore you are great according to all that we've heard with our ears. Now, that's an interesting expression, isn't it? The, the therefore, by the way, refers back to the greatness of the Lord as he made it known to David or as made David know. We see that in verse 21 of chapter 7 again. We saw this last week, but I want to read it again. It says, For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. All the greatness the Lord had brought, it's not simply a reference to David's life and experience. Though that might be a temptation to interpret it as such. But David's actually looking past himself to the Lord who has done greater things in the past and promised to do greater things in the future. That's where David goes. He says, according to all that our ears have heard. Well, that begs the question. What's that that they've heard? Well, they've heard that this God is the God who has brought them out of other nations. Who does that, by the way? What, what type of God looks around and says, you, and just takes them out? This is not the way that gods operate in the ancient Near East. But David looks back to that. David isn't as much responding to what God has done for him personally as he is to what he has heard about what God has done and what God will do again. I mean, again, just keep your eyes right there. It's all through the, you realize this is the same God uh, that, that has brought them out of Israel, right? This serves as the ground of David's confidence in the promise of blessing. You realize there's a sense in which it's not a stretch to say that this is the Old Testament, the gospel in the Old Testament is the Exodus event. Did you know that? When you think about the gospel in the Old Testament, think about the book of Exodus. Listen to this, the Exodus is the redemptive event and the unfolding of the biblical narrative in the Old Testament. It is through that Exodus event that the Lord Jesus does what? He rescues his children from slavery, brings them into covenant relationship, establishing them as a kingdom of priests. Right? David says, I've heard the gospel and I believe. Israel's Lord is God and there is no other. But then he turns and looks forward past even his own life and sees a future blessing that somehow he will partake in because of the promise of God. Let's consider both of those in turn, by the way. Let's go ahead and look backwards and then we're going to look forwards. First, I want us to see that this hearing with faith it, it's grounded in God's past redemption. This hearing with faith is, is grounded in God's past redemption. Keep your eyes on verses 23 and 24. David and Israel, that's the we in verse 22. They've heard of how God has taken one nation out of all nations on the earth and redeemed them and made them his people. They've heard how his great and awesome deeds of redemption have been made known how Yahweh defeated the pantheon of gods in Egypt, that Yahweh struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, but it spared his people by the blood of the Lamb. They had heard how the Lord had divided the Red Sea, how Israel had walked across on dry land. 
They've heard how the sea consumed Pharaoh and his army. They heard how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They'd heard about the walls of Jericho. In fact, David's confession of faith here, it it sounds like a lot like Moses' summary of the Lord's work. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, before they're going into the promised land, Moses summarizes in in chapter 4, verses 32 through 39. Listen what he says carefully. He says, For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other, whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Exodus, to to God delivering his children out of slavery from Egypt and to himself. Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out in the midst of the fire as you've heard and live? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Verse 34. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? He says, it, he says to that generation, he says in verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you grace or he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Verse 37, and because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. Driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. See, that's Moses' summary in Deuteronomy 4. And and he's reminding the people, remember who your God is. That there is no other. Who are you going to seek help from? See, I think we struggle to appreciate this because we really have a misconception of the life of Israel in general. What I mean by that is this. We tend to think of Israel as having daily access to wonders, miracles, and signs. Almost like you and I get our news feed every morning. They wake up like, well, here's my daily miracle. That's right. I remember now the Lord is still Lord. So, so we read the Bible and we're like, the Lord's just handing out miraculous ways all the time. He's working all the time. Yet they're so stiff-necked and they're so hard-hearted. How do they miss it? Because, because really, that's, that's not the way it works. Particularly in this time with David, their reality is God works through signs and wonders primarily through that gospel event in the Exodus. Right? In conjunction with taking Israel out and confirming that covenant with them, that period of time, yeah, it was, it was filled with signs, wonders, and miracles. That they were to see and to hear. But what about David's generation? Or the generation after David? Were they a people that constantly saw signs, wonders, and miracles? No, they weren't. See, here's our struggle. We read a narrated version of history, so we have the benefit of seeing that the Lord struck Uzzah down when he touched the ark, right? Today, if that happened here, 
right? If I said something and then just keeled over dead, you guys would think, oh my goodness, he had a heart attack. That stinks. You guys wouldn't think, oh, the Lord struck him down. Back up. Would you? See, it's even worse for us. Why? We've been swimming in a pool and like fish, we can't even define the water. We have a materialistic, naturalistic worldview that makes it really hard to understand that there was a point in time that the Lord actually worked in miraculous ways. Now we hear the account of that and we're to believe just as David was, just as Israel was. Those generations after the Exodus, they were not inundated with signs and wonders. Actually, they're a lot more like us than you think. I mean, come on, just think of First and Second Samuel here. Just take up this. How many miracles have there been so far? We read through it and think they're just all over the place. Right? The Lord protected them. Goliath, right? But if you don't have special revelation, you know what you're doing? You're sitting up there like, hey, what's that commotion happening over there in that war? I didn't see it. And someone's like... I don't know, some kid got lucky with a stone and killed Goliath. And you're just like, let's go, that's awesome. Do do you think everyone just immediately thought, oh, it was the Lord? Saul didn't. (laughs) Saul apparently didn't understand what David said when he said the battle belongs to the Lord. See, we've read it, we understand it. You know, all that while though, David is, when, when David's running, when he's hungry, when he's scared, he's running from Saul. Do you think he's just daily quoting Psalm 23? Do you understand that that David is making here an ancient confession, but it's not on the grounds of what he's seen in his own life, but on what his ears have heard. He has heard the, the, the testimony of God's redemptive work for the nation of Israel, and he's saying, I believe it. There's no other God. You alone are redeemer. You alone are able to protect and provide and care for your people. Do you understand here that your lives are not utterly different from David? I understand you may feel like it is. And and part of the reason is because you don't get your own divine narrator, do you? I I get it. That'd be nice, right? It'd be nice if every morning I I could review my life from the day before and the narrator would be like, Cody was just driving down the road and a truck almost ran him over, but the hand of the Lord protected him, right? I'd be like, oh man, that was great. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Instead, I drive down the road. The Lord protects me all the time and I just go on my merry way. I rarely thank him or even think about it. But the Lord is with me and for me and it's no different than with David. Yet I look at David's life and and I'm like, if the Lord, man, if he was with me like that, I would be so much more for the Lord. Boy, I'd, I'd really worship him then. My confidence in him would be so much greater. But friends, you've heard. Hear me. You have received a greater sign accompanied with a greater word. How can our confidence not be greater than it is? The the scriptures command us to see the world as it actually is. And you cannot see it apart from God's word. But when you do, you'll realize that the supernatural is all around us. That it's real that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and authorities. 
I mean, let me ask you, is Jesus Christ reigning over the cosmos this very moment or not? So how much more mental and emotional energy is being spent by fear of man or fear of a war or an economic depression? Just fill in the blank. Because the reality is, friends, is what you fear, you serve. David's expressing that. But David isn't just expressing a faith grounded in the past events. He's expressing a faith that is, praise God, future-oriented. The God who has fulfilled the promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, to give him and his offspring the promised land, to bless him, that same God has just declared to the same David in his house. In verses 25 and 27 now, you can direct your attention there. I really have to kind of move quickly through this portion to get to the end. But, but not only... David not only heard and believed the testimony of God's redemptive work in the past, but he heard and believed God's promise of a greater redemption in the future. See, this is actually what the Lord, what David is asking the Lord to to confirm in his heart in verse 25. The promise that he would raise up for him a son who would build the Lord a house. David believes that just as the Lord made himself a name for doing great things for Israel in verse 24... So also the name of the Lord will be magnified for what he will do in the future of David. Hey, do you see that connection? This is important. David is praying that the Lord would confirm the promise to establish David's house. To bring blessings to the nation through the son of David. So, so David's faith is grounded in what the Lord has done, not specifically for his life, though, though certainly David bears testimony to that, but he understands it's the Lord who has established his kingdom. He understands that God's faithfulness in regards to that promise means he has a sure foundation on which to stand. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to skip right to the application here. And, and for that, I want you to, to put your attention on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Now listen, I... To apply this, you could go in really a hundred different places in the New Testament. But I'm coming here because it's the first one I thought of. Um, so, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. right? He's commending them. He's heard about their faith. He's heard about their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. And he ends that section in verse 9 speaking about others who have heard about the faith of Thessalonians. And what does he say? He says... For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I I know that probably wouldn't immediately come to you, but, but that's the ancient confession, is it not? Well, how so? What does Paul say? He says, you turned... From false gods to serve the only true and living God. And when you read the living and true God, read, there is no other. (laughs) You've turned from that which is not God to that which is God and now you serve him. The Thessalonians just made the ancient confession. Each one of us who claim the name of Christ have at one point turned from the idols we used to worship and now worship the one and true living God. 
We know that we cannot serve two masters, but there is only one. We know that we have only but one redeemer, one hope, one God. He is our hope. And listen, I know we say this a lot around here, but I need you to understand this and I need you to hear this. Because I say it with reverence, I say it with seriousness, but but I mean it. That means they may take your stuff. They may take, not without a fight I hope, but they may take your family. They may take your money, your house, your clothes. They may take your freedom. Sorry for those who thought I was going Braveheart with that. But friends, they may take it all because they can't take Christ. They can't. Do you understand that? That ancient confession is the rock on which we stand. Why? Because there is no rock like our rock. So we live by faith because we heard the gospel and and not the gospel of just a physical rescue from a physical slavery in Egypt, but the real deal. That you and I, we've actually been redeemed from the curse. Redeemed from the guilt and the power of our sin. We've been rescued from the devil, the flesh, from our real enemies. That's why we don't fight with flesh and blood. But we do continue to wage war against our flesh. We do continue to take every single thought captive. We do continue to proclaim the good news that all people, anyone who cries out to the Lord in trusting Him, they will be saved. We live by faith in that finished work. We've read about it. It's what we've been doing all morning, remembering that this is the very grounds of our faith. We look backwards, we know that the Lord has done it, it is finished. We also look forward. We have the fulfillment of that which was promised to David. That precious promise. The Lord has built a house. Through the life, death, burial and resurrection. Through the ascension of his son to his right hand. And we've become that house. You see that? The the Lord dwells with us. And is for us. And yet, we, we know that in so many ways, we still carry on as sojourners in this life, don't we? We still abide in the shadow of death. We're still waiting for the consummation of that which Christ has accomplished. And so, we look backwards to that redemption which has been accomplished. And oh, how we look forward to the consummation of that redemption when he returns. You notice in that text in First Thessalonians that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. I know you're tired of me saying it, but I'm not tired of saying it. There is a day quickly approaching where the wrath of God is going to come. You realize that we've been rescued from the wrath of God. There's a day quickly approaching. Listen, the Lord Jesus has made clear. People will be going on just like in the days of Noah. They'll be buying, they'll be selling, they'll be waking up in the morning, getting dressed, having plans to eat with their family in the evening, making plans for spring break or for summer. No one knows the hour, but it will come. And on it, there will be a terrible day of wrath for those who have not taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is no reason for you to perish, though. The gate is open for all of those who will receive him. Please cry out to the Lord and be saved. Live by faith in the redemption that the Lord has accomplished. Keep your eyes on the promise so that we might be a people that have assurance. 
Because we know the Lord is God. We know what he says in verse 28, that his word is true. That he has promised there's a day quickly approaching where every knee will bow. and Every tongue will confess the name of Jesus Christ. He's promised, as we even read in Sammy and the Shepherd this morning, to prepare a place for his people. To return, to bring home those who eagerly await his appearing. So what do we do in the meantime? Friends, let's be a bold and confident people because we have that precious promise that we will be blessed forever. All right, I'm, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Guess what we're going to sing today? We're going to sing joy to the world. <laughs> if you haven't been around here for a minute, you, you may not know that I like to tell you that joy to the world is not actually a Christmas song. It's not primarily about the incarnation. It's more about the resurrection and the consummation of all things, the restoration of all things. We actually did a whole sermon on that. Do you remember? I want us to understand, though, as we sing joy to the world, yes, we are looking back and celebrating and thanking our God for sending his son in the fullness of time to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. Yes, but we're also singing it with an eye to the future, longing for the day where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the seas. Where the curse will actually be turned back wherever it is found. Everything sad. I cannot wait to understand what this means. Everything sad will become untrue. Oh, how I'm confident in that promise. Because I know the Lord's faithfulness. Do you know it? Then joy to the world. Let's stand as we close in a word of prayer. Lord... Gracious Father, you, your Son, and your Spirit are the only true and living God, and there is no other. Father, we have your word. We know that it is true. We have your promise made more certain. Would you give us a confidence that is in keeping with that promise, knowing the one who has made it, Father, would you help us to know there is nothing we can give here and now that we will not receive a thousandfold more in the kingdom to come. Would you help us to live in light of that? To live boldly for your glory. We ask for your help in this for we are weak. But we're thankful that you are faithful. So our confidence is high. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.